Chapter 38 of History of the Norwegian People, Volume 1 by Knut Gershet. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 38 The Discovery of the Mainland of North America. After the Norsemen had succeeded in establishing colonies in Greenland, after ocean voyages were successfully made across the North Atlantic to Norway, and their exploring expeditions found the way northward through the Davis Strait into the polar regions, it is by no means surprising that they should also have found the neighboring coast of the mainland of North America. Though no relic has been found which can be offered as a proof that the Norsemen ever visited these shores, the fact that they discovered America about the year 1000 is so well established as to leave no room for doubt or controversy. Professor Fridtjof Nansen, who in his work In Northern Mists, 1911, has subjected all accounts of the Vinland voyages and the discovery of America by the Norsemen to a most searching criticism, says, Icelandic literature contains many remarkable statements about countries to the southwest or south of the Greenland settlements. They are called Heluland, i.e. slate or stoneland, Markland, i.e. woodland, Fordrustrandir, i.e. the marvel strands, and Vinland, also written Vinland or Vinland. Yet another, which lay to the west of Ireland, was called Fithramanaland, i.e. the white men's land. Even if certain of these countries are legendary, as will presently be shown, it must be regarded as a fact that the Greenlanders and Icelanders reached some of them, which lay on the northeastern coast of America. And they thus discovered the continent of North America besides Greenland, about 500 years before Cabot and Columbus. Vinland is first mentioned by Adam von Bremen, about 1070. In the fourth chapter of his church history of the Archbishopric of Hamburg, Gesta Hamburgensis, is found a description of the lands and islands in the far north, Descriptio Insularum Aquilanus. Adam's geographical knowledge is derived from various sources, from old classic authors, from Bede, Paulus Warnafridus, and other old writers, and partly from information gathered at the court of the Danish king, Svane Istridsson, where he was staying at the time. He says about Vinland, He, the king of Denmark, mentioned also another island which has been discovered by many in this ocean, which is called Vinland, because grapevines grow wild there, and yield the best wine. That self-sown grain is found there in abundance, we have learned, not through fabulous conjecture, but through reliable accounts given by the Danes. Beyond this island there is no habitable land in that ocean, but all which lies beyond is full of unbearable ice and boundless gloom. Of this circumstance we are reminded by Marcian, three days sailing beyond Thule the ocean is congealed. Harold, the king of the Norsemen, a prince very desirous of knowledge, experienced this when he explored the whole width of the northern shore with his ships, and as the disappearing edge of the earth grew dark before his eyes, he scarcely escaped in safety the great abyss by returning. The next mention of Vinland is found in Ara Froda's Islandingabok, 1120-1130. The land which is called Greenland was discovered and colonized from Iceland. Eric the Red, a man from Breidefjord, went thither and took land in a place since called Eriksfjord. He gave the land name and called it Greenland, saying that it would entice people to go there if the country had a fine name. They found human dwelling places both east and west in the land, remnants of boats and stone implements, from which they could judge that the same people had wandered about here, which inhabit Vinland and which the Greenlanders call Schrelings. But he began to colonize the country fourteen or fifteen winters before Christianity was introduced in Iceland, according to what was told Thorkel Gellison in Greenland by one who had accompanied Eric the Red thither. Vitrumanaland and Vinland are mentioned in the Landnama book, about 1250. Vitrumanaland, which some call Ireland the Great, lies in the western ocean near Vinland the Good. It is considered to be six days sailing west of Ireland. 
The Hauk version of the Landnama book also states that Karl Zevna found Vinland the Good. A most interesting allusion to Helluland, Markland, and Vinland is found in an old Icelandic geography, thought to have been written, in part at least, by Abbot Nicholas Bergson of Thvera, who died in 1159. South of Greenland, he says, lies Helluland, then comes Markland, and not very far from there lies Vinland the Good, which some believe to be connected with Africa, but if this is the case, then the Great Ocean must come between Markland and Vinland. It is said that Thorfinn Karlsevne chopped a tree for Husa Snothra, an ornament on a building, and that he afterwards set out to find Vinland the Good, and came to the place where this land was supposed to lie, but he was not able to explore it, and did not establish himself there. Life the Lucky first discovered Vinland, and he rescued some merchants whom he found in the sea in great danger. He also introduced Christianity in Greenland, which so prospered that a bishopric was established at Gardar. We find, then, in the oldest existing form of the tradition, the following quite distinct features. South of Greenland, three lands have been discovered, Helluland, Markland, and Vinland. The discovery is attributed to Leif Eriksson, called Leif the Lucky, who also introduced Christianity in Greenland. Thorfinn Karlsevna led an expedition to Vinland, but no permanent colony was established there. Vinland is mentioned also in several sagas from the classic period of saga literature. In the Eirbygi saga, of about 1250, the following statement is found. Snorra went to Vinland the Good with Karlsevna. They fought there with the Schrelings, and Thorbrand Snorrason, the bravest of men, was killed. The same saga tells also of a merchant by the name of Gudlief, who sailed from Norway to Dublin. From there he was going to Iceland, but was driven by strong winds far westward into the ocean, where he finally came to an unknown land. The warlike natives met them in large numbers, but the chieftain, who proved to be an Icelander, soon addressed them in their own language and made inquiries about his relatives in Iceland. After a long conversation, he advised them to leave the country, and sent with them presents to his friends at home. Vinland is mentioned in the Heimskringla, written about 1230, in the Kristni saga, prior to 1245, and in the Gretzi saga, from 1290. The only lengthy description existing of the discovery of America and the subsequent voyages to Vinland are found in the Saga of Eric the Red, written in the 13th century, and in the Grunlendingathathr, in the Flatyar book, dating from about 1387, but the narratives in these two sources differ in many respects. According to the Grunlendingathathr, it was Bjarne Herjolfsson who first discovered Vinland. On a voyage from Norway to Greenland, he was driven out of his course towards the American coast. He finally reached Greenland, but he said nothing about his discovery till several years afterward, when he was staying in Trondheim, in Norway, at the court of Erik Jarl. He was criticized by many because he had not spoken about it, and Leif Eriksson bought a ship and set out to discover the land which Bjarne had seen. The saga of Erik the Red says that Leif Eriksson discovered America. The Flatyar book describes five different voyages to Vinland. The saga of Erik the Red mentions only two, the discovery by Leif Eriksson and Karl Sevna's attempt to colonize the new land. Professor Gustav Storm has subjected all the sources dealing with this question to a critical examination in his excellent work, Studier over Vinland's Resume, 1887, in which he shows that the saga of Eric the Red, written in the classic period of Icelandic literature, has preserved the tradition regarding the discovery of America in its most reliable form. He points out that this saga bears all the marks of general truthfulness, that it agrees in the main with independent older sources, and that, therefore, the account given must be accepted as reliable in its main features. The Flatyarbuk is a later production, written at a time when the saga literature was fast degenerating, and the tradition had been partly forgotten. He shows that where it differs from the saga of Eric the Red, it stands unsupported by other evidence, that it often relates things in themselves quite incredible, 
and that it must be discarded as a reliable historical source. By following the more reliable saga of Eric the Red, the account of the events connected with the discovery of the mainland of North America and the attempts to found a colony somewhere on the coast will be as follows. Leif Erikson, the son of Eric the Red, sailed from Greenland to Norway in 999. He came to the court of King Olaf Tryggvason and was well received. The king persuaded him to accept the Christian faith, and Leif undertook to proclaim Christianity in Greenland on his return. In the spring of 1000, Leif started on the homeward voyage. Leif put to sea when his ship was ready for the voyage. For a long time he drifted about in the sea, and he came upon lands of which he previously had no knowledge. There were self-sown wheat fields and vines grew there. There were also the trees which are called Masur, Masur. and of all these they had some specimens. Some trees were so large that they were laid in houses, i.e. used as house beams. On his homeward voyage, Leif found some men on a wreck, and took them home with him and gave them all shelter for the winter. He showed much nobility and goodness. He introduced Christianity into the country and rescued the men. He was called Leif in Hepni, the Lucky. After Leif's return home, there was much talk that they ought to seek the land which Leif had found. The leader was Thorsten Eriksson, a good man and wise and friendly. Eric the Red was also asked to join in this undertaking. Eric was asked, and they trusted in his good fortune and foresight being greatest. He was against it, but did not say no, as his friends exhorted him to do it. They drifted about the sea for a long time and did not arrive where they had desired. They came in sight of Iceland, and they had also birds from Ireland. Their ship was carried eastward over the ocean. They came back in the autumn and were then weary and worn. Thorsten Eriksson now married Gudrid, a young woman who shortly before had come over from Iceland. They settled in Lisafjord, in the western settlement, but Thorsten died that same winter, and Gudrid returned to Eric the Red in Brattahlid in 1001. The following summer, two ships came from Iceland. One was owned by Thorfinn Karlsevne. Along with him came Snorra Thorbrandsson. The other ship belonged to Bjarne Grimolfsson and Thorhall Gamlason. They came to Brattahlid to Eric the Red and remained there that winter. After Christmas, Karl Sevna married Gudrid, Thorsten Eriksson's widow. In the spring, he prepared an expedition for the purpose of establishing a colony in Vinland. In 1003, three ships were fitted out, one by Karl Sevna and Snorra Thorbundsen, another by Bjarne Grimolfsson and Thorhall Gamlason, and a third by Thorvald, a son of Eric the Red, and Thorhall Vidimand, the hunter. Karl Sevna's wife, Gudrid, accompanied him and Freydis, a daughter of Eric the Red, also joined the expedition. They had in all 160 men when they sailed to the western settlement, and thence to Bjarniar, their islands. From there they sailed away with a north wind. They were on the sea to Dagger. Then they found land and rowed along it in boats, and examined the country, and found there on the shore many flat stones so large that two men might easily lie stretched upon them soul to soul. There were many white foxes there. They gave the land a name and called it Heluland, i.e. land of flat stones. This land is thought to have been Labrador. Then they sailed for Tudagar towards the southeast and south, and then a land lay before them, and upon it were great forests and many beasts. An island lay to the southeast off the land, and there they found a polar bear, and they called the island Bjarni. But the country they called Markland, i.e. woodland, on account of the forests. This is thought to have been Newfoundland, where extensive forests are found and where red deer still exist in large numbers. Polar bears occasionally reach the coast of Newfoundland on large cakes of ice, but have not been found further south. After they had sailed again for Tudagar, they sighted land and sailed under the land. There was a promontory where they first came. They cruised along the shore, which they kept to starboard, i.e. to the west. It was without harbors, and there were long strands and stretches of land. 
They went ashore in boats, and found there on the promontory a ship's keel, and called it Kjallarnes, i.e. Kielnes. They also gave the strands a name, and called them Furthustrandir, i.e. Marvel Strands, or the wonderful Strange Strands, because it took a long time to sail by them. Gustav Storm held that Kjallarnes was located somewhere on the coast of Cape Breton Island, and that the ship's keel must have been carried thither by the ocean currents. Fritjof Nansen thinks that the name has, probably, been suggested by the shape of the cape, which may have resembled a keel. This was the more common way in which such names originated. South of the Farthustrandir, the land was indented by bays, Vagskorit, and they steered the ships into a bay. Karl Sevne put on shore the Gaelic runners, the man Haki and the woman Hekja, whom Leif and Eric had given him. They were to run southward and examine the condition of the country, and return before three days were passed. Karl Sevne cast anchor and waited during their absence, and when three days were passed they came running down from the land, and one of them had grapes in his hand, the other self-sown wheat. Karl Sevne said that they seemed to have found a fertile country. They sailed along the coast and came to anchor in a fjord. There was an island outside, and round the island strong currents. They called it Stromsi. There were so many birds there that one could hardly put one's foot between the eggs. They held up the fjord and called it Stromsfjord, and unloaded the ships and established themselves there. They had with them all kinds of cattle and sought to make use of the land. There were mountains there, and fair was the prospect. They did nothing else but search out the land. There was much grass. They stayed there the winter, and it was very long, but they had not taken thought for anything and were short of food, and their catch decreased. When they went out to the island expecting that there they might find some fishing, or something might drift up, i.e. a whale be driven ashore, there was, however, little to be caught for food, but their cattle thrived there. Then they prayed to God that he might send them something to eat, but no answer came so quickly as they had hoped. The heathen Thorhall the hunter then disappeared for three dogger, and doubtless held secret conjurations with the red-bearded one, i.e. Thor. A little later a whale was driven ashore, and they ate of it, but were all sick. When they found out how things were with Thorhall and Thor, they cast it over the cliff and prayed God for mercy. They then made a catch of fish, and there was no lack of food. In the spring, 1004, they entered Stromsfjord and had catches from both lands, i.e. from both sides of the fjord, hunting on the mainland, eggs on the island, and fish in the sea. Thorhall the hunter seems to have been much disappointed. He quarreled with Karl Sevne and wished to go northward in search of Vinland, while Karl Sevne decided to go southward. With nine others, who probably wished to return home, he left the expedition. While he was preparing his ship for the voyage, he sang the following lay. Let us go homeward, where we shall find fellow countrymen. Let us with our ships seek the broad ways of the sea, while the hopeful warriors, those who praise the land, on Farthustrandir, stay and boil whale's flesh. When they parted from Karlsevna, who had accompanied them out, and sailed north of Farthustrandir and Kjallarnes, then they parted from Karlsevna, who had accompanied them out, and sailed north of Furthustrandir and Kjarlarnes, and then tried to beat westward. Then the westerly storm caught them, and they drifted to Ireland, where they were made slaves and ill-treated. There Thorhall lost his life, as merchants have reported. Karlsevna, with Snorre, Bjarne, and the rest, continued southward along the coast. They sailed a long time until they came to a river, which flowed down from the interior into a lake, and thence into the sea. There were great sandbars before the mouth of the river, so that it could only be entered at high water. Karl Sevna and his people sailed to the mouth of the river and called the country Hup, i.e. small landlocked bay. There they found self-sown wheat fields where the land was low, but vines wherever they saw heights. 
As every brook was full of fish, they dug trenches on the shore below high water mark, and when the tide went out, there were halibuts in the trenches. In the forests, there was a great quantity of beasts of all kinds. They were there half a month amusing themselves and suspecting nothing. They had their cattle with them. But early one morning, when they looked about them, they saw nine hide boats, hudkaipa, and wooden poles were being waved on the boats, making a noise like threshing flails, and they were moved with the sun. Karl Sevna's men took this to be a token of peace and bore a white shield towards them. Then the strangers rode towards them and wondered and came ashore. They were small, or black men, and ugly, and they had ugly hair. Their eyes were big, and they were broad across the cheeks. They stayed there a while, and wondered, then rode away and went south of the headland. Professor Nansen says of this first meeting of white men with the North American Indians. This, then, would be the description of the first meeting in history between Europeans and the natives of America. With all its brevity, it gives an excellent picture, but whether we can accept it is doubtful. As we shall see later, the Norsemen probably did meet with Indians, but the description of the latter's appearance must necessarily have been colored more and more by greater familiarity with the shearlings of Greenland when the sagas were put into writing. The big eyes will not suit either of them, and are rather to be regarded as an attribute of trolls and underground beings. Gnomes and old fairymen have big watery eyes. The ugly hair is also an attribute of the underground beings. Karl Sevna had built their houses above the lake, some nearer, some farther off. Now they stayed there that winter, 1004 to 1005. No snow fell at all, and their cattle were out at pasture. Regarding the probable location of Vinland, there has been much difference of opinion. In the Flatejar book, the statement is made that day and night are of more equal length there than in Greenland or Iceland. The sun had their Ektarstadr and Dagmalastadr on the shortest day of the year, i.e. the sun was up at Ektar time and Dagmala time in the darkest season of the year. According to the interpretation of the passage by the scholars, the shortest winter day would be of such a length that Vinland would have to be located in latitude 41 degrees, 24 minutes, 10 seconds, or on the coast of Rhode Island. This was the interpretation given by Thorfeus in his Vinlandia, 1705, and later writers followed it until it was regarded as quite firmly established that Vinland was located on the coast of Rhode Island or Massachusetts. In conformity with this view, it was also thought that the inscription on the Dighton Rock, on the Tonston River, was a runic inscription made by the Norsemen, and that the old stone tower at Newport, Rhode Island, was the remains of a building erected by them. Gustav Storm has shown that this passage in the Flathear book has been misinterpreted, and that no theory as to the location of Vinland can be adduced from it. He shows that Heluland, in all probability, was Labrador, that Markland must have been Newfoundland, and that Vinland, which according to the saga narrative was located as far north as wild grapes were growing, in all likelihood was the coast of Nova Scotia. The Newport stone tower has been shown to have been an old stone mill, and the Dighton rock inscription has been found to be Indian picture writing. When spring came, they saw early one morning a number of hide boats rowing from the south past the headland, so many that it seemed as if the sea had been sown with coal in front of the bay, and that they waved wooden poles on every boat. Then they set up shields and held a market, and the people wanted most to buy red cloth. They also wanted to buy swords and spears, but this was forbidden by Karl Sevna and Snorra. The Skrellings gave them untanned skins in exchange for the cloth, and trade was proceeding briskly, when an ox, which Karl Sevna had, ran out of the woods and began to bellow. The Skrellings were scared and ran to their boats and rowed south along the shore. After that, they did not see them for three weeks. But when that time was passed, they saw a great multitude of Skrelling boats coming from the south, as though driven on by a stream. 
Then all the wooden poles were waved against the sun, and all the skrillings howled loudly. Then Karlsevne and his men took red shields and bore towards them. The skrillings leaped from their boats, and then they made towards each other and fought. There was a hot exchange of missiles. The skrillings also had catapults, Volslunger. Karlsevne and his men saw that the skrillings hosted upon a pole a great ball about as large as a sheep's paunch, blue in color, and slung it from the pole upon the land over Karlsevne's people, and it made a great noise when it came down. At this, great terror smote Karlsevne and his people, so that they had no thought but of getting away and up the river, for it seemed to them that the skrillings were assailing them on all sides, and they did not halt until they had reached certain crags. Then they made a stout resistance. Freydis came out and saw that they were giving way. She cried out, Wherefore do ye run away from such wretches, ye gallant men? I thought it likely that ye could slaughter them like cattle, and had I but arms, I believe I should fight better than any of you. None heeded what she said. Freydis tried to go with them, but she fell behind, for she was with child. She nevertheless followed them into the woods, but the skrillings came after her. She found before her a dead man, Thorburn Snorrison, and a flat stone was fixed in his head. His sword lay unsheathed by him, and she took it up and defended herself with it. Then the skrillings came at her. She then took her breasts out of her sark and wetted the sword on them. At that the skrillings became afraid and ran away back to their boats and went away. Karlsevna and his men met her and praised her happy device. Two out of Karlsevna's men fell, and four of the skrillings. But nevertheless Karlsevna had suffered defeat. They then went to their houses to bind up their wounds, and to consider what swarm of people it was that came against them from the land. It seemed to them now that there could have been no more than those who came from the boats, and that the other people must have been glamour. It was probably a well-planned Indian ambush, a mode of warfare with which the Norsemen were not acquainted. The Skrellings also found a dead man, and an axe lay beside him. One of them took the axe and struck at a tree, and so one after another, and it seemed to delight them that it bit so well. Then one took and smote a stone with it, but when the axe broke he thought it was of no use, if it did not stand against stone, and he cast it from him. Karlsevna and his men now thought they could see that although the land was fertile, they would always have troubles and disquiet with the people who dwelt there before. Then they prepared to set out and intended to go to their own country. They sailed northward and found five skrailings sleeping in fur jerkins, and they had with them kegs with deer's marrow mixed with blood. They thought that they could understand that these were outlaws and they killed them. Then they found a headland and a multitude of deer, and the headland looked like a crust of dried dung from the deer lying there at night. Now they came back to Stromsfjord, and there was abundance of everything. It is reported by some that Bjarna and Gudrid remained behind there, and a hundred men with them, and did not go farther. But they say that Karlsevna and Snorra went southward with forty men and were no longer at Hop than barely two months, returning the same summer. Karlsevna then set out with one ship in search of Thorhall the hunter, but the greater part of the company remained behind. They sailed to the northward around Kellerness, and then bore to the westward, having land to the Larbord. The country there was a wooded wilderness as far as they could see. On this voyage, Thorvald Eriksson was killed by an arrow shot from the shore. By a uniped, says the saga. They returned to Stromsfjord and remained there that winter. The next summer, 1006, they sailed for Markland and thence to Greenland. The winter, 1006 to 1007, they, sp they spent at the home of Eric the Red at Bratelheid. Professor Fridjof Nansen holds that the saga of Eric the Red, though it contains features which show that the Norsemen must have visited the American continent, and that they met with North American Indians, is nevertheless a piece of fiction. 
that the description of Vinland is patched together from traditions about the Insule Fortunate, found in many old Latin writers. To sum up, it appears to me clear that the saga's description of Wineland must in its essential features be derived from the myth of the Insule Fortunate. The description of the grapes and the self-sown wheat said to have been found in Vinland he regards as features borrowed from these old traditions. The name Vinland has its origins, he thinks, in the Irish legends of St. Brannan, or it is possibly simply a translation of the name Insule Fortunate. While the description of the Skraling shows them to have been imaginary beings with the characteristics usually ascribed to such beings in popular superstition. About Leif Erikson, he says, In the year 999, according to the saga, Leif, the son of Eric the Red, sailed from Greenland to Norway. This is the first time we hear of so long a sea voyage being attempted, and it shows in any case that this long passage was not unknown to the Icelanders and Norwegians. Formerly, the passage to Greenland had been by way of Iceland, thence to the east coast of Greenland, southward along the coast, and around Hwarf. But capable seamen, like the intrepid Leif, thought they could avoid so many changes of course and arrive in Norway by sailing due east from the southern point of Greenland. Thereby Leif Erikson becomes the personification of the first Osun voyager in history, who deliberately and with settled plans seared straight across the open Atlantic, without seeking to avail himself of harbors on the way. It also appears clearly enough from the sailing directions for navigation of northern waters which have come down to us that voyages were made across the ocean directly from Norway to Greenland. It must be remembered that the compass was unknown, and that all ships at that time were without fixed decks. This was an exploit equal to the greatest in history. It is the beginning of ocean navigation. The claim, however, that Leif Erikson first discovered the North American mainland rests, according to Nansen, on weak and unreliable evidence. He says about the saga of Eric the Red, It will therefore be seen that the whole narrative about Wineland voyages is a mosaic of one feature after another gathered from east and west. It looks as though the tale of life had been inserted without proper connection. In the Grunlendingathother, too, this discovery is attributed to another man, Bjarne Herjolfsson, which shows that the tradition about life had not been firmly rooted. The question then arises, is there anything in the saga narrative which must be regarded as reliable? Nansen answers that, although the saga in its main features must be regarded as invention, the chief personages in the narrative may be historical. The description of the baron in Stony Helluland, Labrador, of the forest-covered Markland, Newfoundland, and of Kjarlarnes seems to rest on local topographical knowledge. The oldest and most original features of the saga are the verse found in it, which give a different, and as it appears a more realistic picture of the newly discovered land, where the explorers drank water and ate the flesh of whales which had drifted ashore. He points out that the trading with the natives described in the saga, and the subsequent war with them, must rest on actual experience. These features cannot be explained by the traditions about the Insule Fortunate, nor can the ideas of bloody battles with the natives in which the Norsemen were defeated have originated in Greenland. It must represent an actual encounter with the Indians. It is impossible that the Greenlanders or Icelanders should have described a battle with the unwarlike Eskimos of Greenland in this way. There can be no doubt that the Norsemen had reached America, and had met the North American Indians. It is further substantiated by the description of so remarkable a weapon as the ballista, known to have been used by the Algonquin Indians. The references to the discovery of America found in the Lannama book and in the Islandinga book, by the reliable old writer Ara Froda, shows that the tradition was old and firmly established before the saga of Eric the Red was written. The most reliable evidence that these discoveries were actually made is found, according to Nansen, not in the sagas, but in an entry in the Islandske Annalar, Schalholt Annals, for the year 1347. 
There came also a ship from Greenland smaller in size than the small vessels that trade to Iceland, i.e. ships plying between Norway and Iceland. It came to the outer Stromsfjord, on the south side of Snæfellsnes in Iceland. It was without an anchor. There were seventeen men on board, and they had sailed to Markland, but afterwards, i.e. on the homeward voyage to Greenland, they were driven hither, i.e. to Iceland. Nansen thinks that, as the Schalholt Annals were written not very long after the event here mentioned, probably about 1363, it must be regarded as certain that this ship had been in Markland, probably for the purpose of bringing home wood and timber. The driftwood which could be found did not supply the demand, and for bows and the like it was useless. He says, But if this voyage took place in 1347, and we only hear of it through the accident of the vessels getting out of her course and being driven to Iceland, we may be sure that there were many more like it, only that these were not the expeditions of men of rank which attracted attention, but everyday voyages for the support of life, like the sealing expeditions to Norther and when nothing particular happened to these vessels, such as being driven to Iceland, we hear nothing about them. We must therefore suppose that, even if they had given up the idea of forming settlements in the west, the Greenlanders occasionally visited Markland, Newfoundland or the southernmost part of Labrador, perhaps chiefly to obtain wood of different kinds. In the so-called Greenland annals put together from old sources by Bjorn Jonsson of Skardsa, beginning of the 17th century, it is said of the districts on the west coast of Greenland to the north of the western settlement that they take up trees in all the drift that comes from the bays of Markland. This shows that it was customary to regard Markland as the region from which wood was to be obtained. The name itself, equals Woodland, may have contributed to this view, but the fact that it survived long after all mention of Wineland had ceased may probably be due to communication with the country having been kept up in later times, and to this name being the really historical one on the coast of America. On the farm Hernan, in the district of Ringerike, in southern Norway, a rune stone was still to be seen in 1823. The stone is now lost, but the inscription has been copied and preserved. It reads as follows, according to Sofasbuga. They came out into the ocean, and over wide expanses, vit, and needing cloth to dry themselves on, and food, away toward Wineland, up into the ice in the uninhabited country. Evil can take away luck, so that one dies early. Buga thinks that the inscription dates from the period 1000 to 1050, but it is difficult to decipher it, and the interpretation will always remain doubtful. The inscription seems to have been chiseled on the stone in commemoration of some man of note who had lost his life on a voyage to the far west. On this voyage they were driven far into the ocean in the direction of Vinland. After having suffered shipwreck they had left their ships, and had probably tried to save themselves on the drifting ice off the coast of Greenland. Some perished, but someone must have survived to tell the story. If the interpretation of the inscription is correct, this is the first known mention of Vinland. The last mention of a voyage to Vinland is an entry in the Icelandic annals for the year 1121, stating that in that year Bishop Eric, Eric Gnupsen, went to search for Vinland. This Eric may have been the first bishop in Greenland. He must have lost his life on the expedition, as nothing more was heard of him, and in 1122 or 1123 the Greenlanders were making efforts to get another bishop. That the Norsemen failed to establish colonies in America is in no wise remarkable. There was at this time no general emigration from Norway to the colonies, and the new and poorly equipped settlements in Greenland had neither the means nor the population to successfully carry out such an undertaking. They had few ships and lacked the materials for building new ones. Arms, implements, and supplies were scarce and were difficult to procure. Their scant resources had to be employed in procuring the necessaries of life on those bleak and inhospitable shores where they maintained a precarious existence for well-nigh five hundred years. 
However the sagas may be interpreted in detail, all scholars agree that the mainland of North America was discovered by the Norsemen about the year 1000. But this discovery led to no abiding results. It is one of the closing episodes of the Viking Age, not the beginning of a new era. The world was not yet ready to profit by so auspicious an event. The Viking colonial empire had reached its final limits, both in extent and power, and the nations of Europe had to slumber and gather strength for another 500 years before empire building in the new world could be begun. End of chapter 38